rolling. Hi there. This is Cyphylopod, <laughs> episode two. Today we're going to talk about moral philosophy. Yes, and our clever title today is the humongous show on moral philosophy, why you can't reason your way to moral truth. <laughs> That's devilishly clever. <laughs> I'm Corey Clark, an assistant professor of social psychology at Durham University in the UK. I'm Bo Weingard, assistant professor of psychology at Marietta, United States. Ohio. Broadcasting the from state. the tiny, yes, that's right. <laughs> Broadcasting from the tiny hole in an undisclosed Marietta location, mm -hmm. also known as my office. <laughs> so we're going to talk first about a broad distinction thinkers make about moral philosophy and psychology, and that's the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive morality. Mm -hmm. So basically what this means is Prescriptive uh, morality is a morality in which you're saying how people ought to live. And we're going to probably focus more on this be because descriptive morality, which is morality where you just describe how people actually behave and how they actually ju judge other people, right. that seems more of the realm of psychology and anthropology. Yes, I agree that psychology probably attempts to be more descriptive, but often they try to be prescriptive because I guess that's how you get published or get grants or something. I don't know. <laughs> yes, people. And also, I, I'm, I suspect that people have strong moral beliefs that, let's say, cloud their work at minimum. Right. I would agree. Right. Yeah. An inordinate number of prominent moral psychologists seem to be uh, utilitarians. <laughs> yes. Or they say and they are, but I don't think anyone's truly a utilitarian. Yes, and we'll get into that. <laughs> and this also may be one of the only hours of moral philosophy that you will ever listen to in which we will not talk about the trolley problem. So we just talked about be, it. Crap. Well, other than noting it, <laughs> we should mark that down. So perhaps the biggest problem in all of moral philosophy, at least for modern thinkers, is, is there an objective moral truth? Is there a such thing as objective moral truth? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is? Um, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, it's, it's worth noting that this was... It was taken for granted, largely, at least, among Greek and medieval philosophers that, of course, there was an objective moral truth. The Greeks, for example, if you read most of their debates and conversations, it wasn't, is there an objective moral right and wrong? It was, what is the good? Which it, most of them just took for granted that, of course, there was actually an objective good. And then, of course, medieval philosophers had a very elaborate metaphysical world in which there was a god who determined what was right or wrong. And yet they were very barbaric in their treatment of people. <laughs> and yet, for all of that, and that gets to a question we'll talk about later, which is, what does moral philosophy actually do? Does it actually does it cause moral... Yeah, exactly. Or does it just allow us to rationalize and... Right. Um, so perhaps the most, well, 
one of the most important moral philosophers was David Hume. And David Hume's particularly important because of what people perceive as his uh, maybe moral skepticism or skepticism that there's a such thing as objective moral truth. Right. And that you can't reason your way to morality. That's right. So David Hume says, imagine a situation, and we could just make one up in which I think he actually has one with a baby, but we'll just make a different one up. Imagine that you look at a guy whipping another guy, and the guy who's getting whipped is obviously not consenting to it, and he's in great pain. Mm -hmm. According to Hume, there's no fact of the matter that determines that that's an immoral behavior. That is, we can analyze that scene and talk about the ideas that the impressions in our mind, as he would call them, and nothing about them in and of themselves would say this is wrong. Right. Because morality is a value judgment and you can't have, you can't reason your way to value judgments in the same way. You can't reason your way to the conclusion that pizza tastes delicious. Right. I like this example. So if you, if you were just to, you know, think about pizza and you were to look at it and analyze it, taste delicious would not be an objective property of pizza. Rather, it would be an interaction between the pizza and our brain. Mm-hmm. And that we and, evolved to like right. fat and carbs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And those people at Prochetta have exploited us. By cruelty. Right, exactly. Yeah. So Hume, Hume says there has to be something else going on here. And what the something else is, I'm not sure exactly the term he uses, but we'll passion. just turn the yeah, passion, I believe. We'll we'll just use the term intuition or yeah. emotion. There's some sort of emotional response to uh watching this scene of depraved cruelty that we find revolting and therefore we judge it as immoral. And your moral judgment has to be based on that intuition. Right. So there's a, a very famous phrase that comes from David Hume that is often quoted, and we want to point out, often quoted to to, to defend a position that it's... Out of context, it's, I think. Yes, yeah. out of context and defending a position that Hume himself would not have defended. And that is, reason is and ought to be the slave of passion. Mm-hmm. Now, what Hume meant by this wasn't that reason is just there to justify your passions or to rationalize. Rather, he thought it's there to guide you to an end once you have the emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's why he thought it should be the slave, right? Right. Because you have to have an intuition about what the goal should be, and then you can reason your way to that goal, ideally. Right. So, So imagine that your goal is, I really like to cut the lawn with scissors. (laughs) Maybe that, maybe that's absurd. Maybe it's not. According to Hume, it's not rational or irrational. And what reason can do is guide you to the goal once you have it. Mm-hmm. But it's it, that doesn't necessarily mean that what reason is doing is justifying your own hypocrisy, right? Which is how the, the phrase seems often to be used today. Yes. Okay, so... Hume forward. Now, we should say, right, that Hume's a profound moral philosopher, and he thought that there there were interesting things we could say about morality, etc. 
But probably the thing he's most famous for is a, a sort of skeptical challenge to objective morality. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. And so his challenge then basically is there isn't object there there are no objective moral truths. Right. And I think probably the reason we have this intuition that there are or that there should be is just because humans are kind of similar to one another. And so we just kind of agree on a lot of things. We all think that it's terrible to harm innocent people. Well, for the most part, maybe we don't. And maybe historically, people did a lot of, well, they definitely did a lot of that and still do a lot of that. But we all kind of agree on things, but it's, it didn't have to be the case that we all agreed that harming innocent people is wrong. So I'm a little bit skeptical about that explanation. I think that part of the whole part of the purpose of a moral judgment is to persuade other people that you've been Mm -hmm. wronged and to get them on your side, which is why the moral judgment feels as though it's universal, because inevitably to persuade other people, you have to attempt to make it a universal judgment, not a this is just for me, not for other people. Right. It's an interesting problem, though, because you have to think about what would have come first, the arguing or the moral judgment, because you'd have to... I think they would come together in a package, basically. I suppose that would have had to have been the case, because people would have to have some type of moral intuition you could appeal to sure, in order absolutely. to appeal to them. Yes, absolutely. That yeah. That is correct. Um And this is more of a problem of moral psychology, actually, (laughs) which um, we probably will talk about a lot in a later episode. So we'll we'll ignore the complexities Mm -hmm. of the moral um, psychology here. We do want to point out. So Hume lays I mean, we can say he lays down this challenge. And of course, philosophers not prone to shying away from an intellectual challenge, attempt to take him head on, right? Mm -hmm. And there are, I mean, there are lots of different answers to Hume, but we want to talk mostly about two different kinds. Mm -hmm. And we've divided that into the Kantian response, that is the the response of Immanuel Kant, and then the utilitarian response. Right. And they're both wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They might both be wrong, and we'll talk about why, although there are like 57 different flavors of utilitarianism, so it's complicated. So are you, did you read up on Kant's moral philosophy to the point that you'd like to- I refreshed myself a little bit, Okay, you should probably, I think you'll do a better job. Okay, so Kant wanted a priori, that is to say, prior- independent, non-empirical, but related to the empirical world, knowledge about morality, certain knowledge. Hume says there's no such thing because without your experience, your emotional experience, you couldn't know if something was right or wrong. Kant wants something that's right or wrong independent of that. Mm -hmm. So he makes a distinction between hypothetical imperatives and a categorical imperatives or the categorical imperative, which we'll get to in a second. So he's, he doesn't think hypothetical imperatives are necessarily bad. He just thinks that they're not the foundation of morality. So a hypothetical imperative is an if-then statement. 
if you care about charity, then you should give to this organization. Or if you like people smiling, then you should tell jokes so that they will smile. Now, Kant thinks the problem with the hypothetical imperative is it relies on your caring about something in the first place, right? Namely, the if part. A categorical imperative is true regardless of anything, right? So it is the imperative. And the unfortunate thing is Kant describes the categorical imperative in a number of different ways, right? right? And people write 400, 500-page <laughs> books about what the categorical <laughs> imperative means, but probably the most common formulation of it is you do the behavior that you could will universally and it wouldn't lead to sort of the it wouldn't undermine its own logic right right which is essentially other, just that you should you shouldn't do things that you wouldn't want everyone to potentially do or that you would you, you would you should only do things that you would allow everyone to right. do right right and there are lots of problems with this particular formulation. Another thing that he he notes is that we should treat people as ends in and, in and of themselves and not as means to an end. Um, so it gets complicated, but there's it does seem important to Kant that there's this universal aspect because he thinks that if you tell a lie that's irrational in some sense because lies undermine themselves. And the way they undermine themselves is if everybody lied, then nobody would believe anything and then you couldn't lie. So the act itself is self-defeating. Mm-hmm. Right. And that applies like regardless of context. That's right. right. Context is you don't need empirical input to know these truths, right? These are truths that are completely rational, but they do apply to the empirical world. Mm-hmm. So Kant calls them synthetic a priori. We won't get too into that, I suppose, but oh, I know. So what's worth noting is the Broad or Broad, I don't know how you pronounce his name, actually, but he made the distinction, which most people are familiar with today, between consequentialist style philosophy and deontological moral Mm -hmm. philosophy. And Kant's is perhaps the deontological moral philosophy par excellence. And what deontological means is it's concerned with the goodness or the badness of the act itself and not with the consequences. Right. And in, in fact, Kant believed that if you had a good will, the consequences were to some degree irrelevant to the goodness of the act. Right. He says the act would shine like a jewel still, even if you couldn't succeed in your good intentions. Right. So if you tried to help somebody and it was blocked somehow, right. and you never actually did help the person, then that's just as good as successfully helping someone, which I think is probably kind of silly. Like we should probably, I think in the real world care. So like an example that people give is like, should we judge someone who, who, um, drinks and drives and kills someone more harshly than someone who drinks and drives and doesn't kill someone. That moral act is identical and both people are equally terrible. And I think that that feels satisfying somehow. It seems we should be like, yeah, the person who 
who um, got drunk and got behind the wheel is just as morally bad. But probably in the real world, all of these judgments are happening in, you know, if you're drinking and driving and, and killing someone, it probably was riskier. Maybe the road you were on was busier or there were, you were more likely to hit somebody. Um, so Well, what if that. you're on the same road? What if you do it on the same road? Yeah, but you don't have those in the real world, really, right? You don't have identical acts. Everything's happening within Uh, a particular context. That's why we're doing philosophy. (laughs) We don't care about the real world. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I suppose we don't. But like... Yeah, there are numerous examples. So suppose, for example, that I am born without arms, so I can't help people in certain ways, but I sincerely desire to. I have a good moral will. Should I be treated similarly to somebody who actually does accomplish more help? I think I I get Kant's point. He really wants this notion that there's a good will independent of all empirical contingencies. And in fact, people have pointed out that his morality is a very egalitarian morality Mm -hmm. because he wants to say it shouldn't matter how smart you are or how able you are to actually follow through on the, this goodwill. Um, but I think alas, in the real world, we're going to care about consequences to a degree at least. Right. Yeah. But I would argue even that it's rational to do that. Oh, I, I, I agree. I'm sorry. I sounded as though I was prescriptive morality, I think would want to take that into consideration. Yes. I think that that's right. So, We'll have more to say about the the Kantian philosophy, but let's set that one aside just for a moment to to um, touch upon the other. I mean, to call it an answer to Hume, it's not necessarily an answer to Hume because a lot of utilitarians would agree with Hume. They would just move Hume forward, if you will. There's the but there's the response to what is what is morality about ultimately what's the objective thing we should care about in morality and utilitarianism which arose in england in the 1700s uh jeremy bentham widely regarded as the founder of utilitarianism although he was building on other people of course what he said was the thing that matters in the universe the only thing in fact that matters intrinsically in the universe is mental states mm-hmm. And that, therefore, what we should do is maximize pleasant mental states while reducing unpleasant ones. Right. So whether something is morally good depends on whether it brings out the most good for the most people. Right. So that's I guess we should say that's another point to the utilitarian philosophy is that each person's mental states are equally valuable. Right. Um, and that so because you could imagine I say, yeah, mental states are the only thing that matters, but mine are 22 times w- <laughs> more valuable than yours are. <laughs> yeah. And so the utilitarian or at least any utilitarian I'm familiar with rejects that and says each mental state is uh, uniquely valuable and equally valuable. Right. So. Now, the problem, one problem for talking about utilitarianism are, is that there are myriad forms of utilitarianism, all attempting probably to answer different challenges. So we should mm-hmm. point out Bentham is a classic 
act-based hedonic utilitarian. And what that fancy jargon means is he thought you judge acts, that is individual behaviors, and he thought that what you should maximize is pleasure, hedonic, hedons, or pleasure, anyway, utils, as he called it when he talked about how you could calculate these mental states. So that would be hedonic act-based utilitarianism. As we'll see, there are many different varieties. So that's Bentham's utilitarianism, probably made famous by John Stuart Mill, who a lot of utilitarians actually consider a rather sloppy thinker. (laughs) So he did a good job of of making this popular in Victorian England, but he was actually a, a rather sloppy thinker. And there's a utilitarian named Henry Sidgwick, who's much more profound, but much less read because his writing is atrocious, is just really dull. Um, so so are, should we talk about problems, with challenges to hedonic utilitarianism and why we might want a different form of it? Yeah, probably. Okay, so... Let's just talk. Yeah. So we'll focus on hedonic utilitarianism, especially act based. So one problem with it is that, well, okay. so people have raised numerous challenges. The most common metaphysical challenges. What if there's a utility monster? And that what that means is that we'll just call him a he. So he his his, torturing other people gives him unspeakable delight. (laughs) So let's say it takes two utility points from the people and it gives him 3,000. Right. You know, it's like a Pop-Tart plus pizza plus an orgasm all put into (laughs) one mental state, (laughs) all packed in there. Okay, so the problem is if if you're a hedonic utilitarian, it seems as though you have to accept that his behavior is actually moral because it's increasing the overall average subjective well-being in the room, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to go to, you, you could just do something like drugs, right? So a person could do heroin and it brings them all kinds of pleasure and then eventually they die, but their death... You know, I don't Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's, uh, that's on me. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, like someone who's addicted to heroin, they get a lot of pleasure from using heroin. They use it regularly, and eventually they die. But they're when they die, they don't really suffer because they're on drugs. And so you'd have to say that it's perfectly fine, basically, for people to drug themselves to death, I think. I'm not that enamored of that example and i don't think it's particularly hard for the utilitarian to deal with because they're well so you have a couple a couple points against it one thing is drug users cause immense suffering to other people in society but you could have a scenario where they didn't there's a person who just hangs out you, at home and does drugs possibly yeah but i mean i would argue that that's uh, now, I guess you could return that the utility monster is 100% implausible, which is obviously <laughs> correct. <laughs> but the other thing is, and this is where John Stuart Mill becomes very controversial. So Stuart Mill, Bentham famously argued, look, like, if if you get as much entertainment or pleasure from, I think he called it pushpin, which was a game 
in England at the time, but we'll just call it bowling. So let's say bowling just rocks your boat and you love it. <laughs> he said, fine. You know, there's nothing intrinsically better about reading Play-Doh over bowling. Stuart Mill tried to correct him on that, right? So Stuart Mill thought if a human, if they actually could experience the sort of elevated pleasure of, say, Virgil's poetry or something, they would definitely choose that over some, you know, relatively unsophisticated pleasure. So, so Mill tried to say, well, actually, utilitarians can defend this elitist principle because it's more pleasurable if you're a human. So I can't remember the famous quote. It's basically like better to be like a dissatisfied Socrates than a satisfied pig or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think also, though, a utilitarian doesn't have to worry about that because a person would probably rather have a discussion with somebody who is like reading interesting things rather than somebody who just bowls all the time. So they actually become a more like useful member of society and increase the utility of everyone else by participating in that activity. Yes. So that's true. And that that's interesting. We can think about that in a bit. And now here's another challenge. So the utility monster, let's go to that one because we didn't We didn't solve that puzzle, did we? So one answer is perhaps it actually shows that hedonic-based utilitarianism is wrong in some metaphysical sense, right? Because a a response to this, uh, and a lot of people have made this, I remember Joshua Green making it in the excellent book, Moral Tribes is, yeah, there aren't any such thing as moral, as, as utility monsters. Like they don't exist, so the utilitarian doesn't really have to deal with them. And that works if you're a pragmatic utilitarian, right? That is to say, if you think utilitarianism is just a good guide to moral behavior, then okay, that works. If you're a metaphysical utilitarian, utilitarian, that doesn't work. And that is to say, if you think there's something objectively true about utilitarianism, then the utility monster is a problem. Wouldn't utilitarianism also be a problem when you have – it would actually – benefit the most selfish members of society because people who are just miserable unless they get their way all of the time Mm -hmm. they would you would uh i think in order to maximize the utility of everyone in the world their concerns would matter more than someone who's really easygoing and is just like you know kind of happy regardless Mm -hmm. of the situation Mm-hmm. So I think if you were going to care about that, you would end up in a world where people who are just really obnoxious and have to have their way mm-hmm. all the time would be the most important people and would control what happens. Right. And you could make this with a, a sort of get get my own way utility monster. So you could imagine, again, a group of 10 people and the utility monster, if it doesn't get its way. It's like the worst feeling in the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And therefore everyone has slightly lower utility because they have to concede to the utility monster. And that's actually better overall though, because of the utilities monster monsters, extreme unpleasant mental state happens in the real world. Like 
if you have sure. a family and there's like a three-year-old child who wants to eat at a particular restaurant, no one else in the family likes the restaurant, right. but the kid is throwing a hissy fit and screaming. And just to get the kid to stop screaming, they go to the restaurant that nobody else wants to go to. Right. That's the world yes. you would live in, <laughs> I think. Yes. Yeah. So, so, well, I mean, I think again, the pragmatic utilitarian would respond that's not that much of a problem in our world. Like we, we kind of adhere to the principle to begin with. So if you're in a relationship Mm -hmm. and you know, your, your girlfriend gets really angry if the sink isn't cleaned, you, you know, you just probably try to adhere to those rules because she cares about it more than you do. I think we accept that as a basic principle and we try to make that trade off. And there that works a, with like mostly reasonable people, though. Correct. And sure, not everyone sure. is like that. No, I I agree with that. But for the most part, I think the pragmatic utilitarian would say, okay, for you know, it works most of the time. And then in the extreme cases, you know, we we can we can try to solve the extreme cases when we get there. It does undermine it metaphysically again because you can come up with these extreme examples and show probably nobody would want to inhabit the utilitarian world if there were a such thing as utilita- uh, utility monsters, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there are other ways of dealing with that. I, wanna, I, I do want to go over another example that's often given against um, hedonic utilitarianism, and that is, well, according to hedonic utilitarianism, ultimately some sort of matrix type world in which you're just maximizing your pleasures, but you're plugged into some computer would be the best one. Right. And I actually, I just don't find this one particularly persuasive because I think what the people who forward the argument think is that we should recoil in horror from that. My answer is bring (laughs) it on and plug me in. (laughs) Yeah, that Seriously. sounds fine to me, but right. I, I guess I don't understand it. If if here, if you gave me this choice, you said you can plug into a computer for the rest of your life, and your life will be a lot better and more pleasurable than it is in the real world now. Mm-hmm. I would say, cool, do it. Why wouldn't I? Yeah, I guess there's like an assumption that that's just not possible because people care more about interacting with real humans than they do. Right, Robots but then the, the but then the argument undermines but then it undermines itself yeah. because if people would prefer to talk to other people or live in the quote real world, mm-hmm. then they would choose that, and then the argument's not that forceful. Right. I think there's this there's this um, there's a this sort of ominous brave new world behind all of it, right? And, you know, so Brave New Worlds, the novel by Aldous Huxley, I can't remember all of the details because it's been a long time since I read it. But basically, the population was kept happy by this drug that they took. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't know. I guess my thought is kind of cool <laughs> if it works. <laughs> I'm like Cypher. I'm like, plug me back in the Matrix, man. Yeah, I think that would be OK if everyone was just doing drugs and it made everyone happy. Yeah, I mean, they're they're also functional and efficient, right? I mean, they're getting stuff done. I understand that there are concerns about creeping dictatorship, and those are real concerns, but I I think the actual drug concern 
at least to me, it seems misplaced, but people have forwarded that argument and a lot of people seem to find it an intuitively uh, significant challenge to to hedonic utilitarianism. Yeah, but I think that's maybe our bias toward nature and just wanting things to be natural. Or, or like the, the notion that there's the notion that there's like this real the, there's a real meaningful world and then there's right. this illusory world right. and it's and like, you're like if you're distorting if, your experience right from, but again you're, from you're believing delusions right. right but if everyone shared those delusions it would be reality in the same way right, if everyone exactly. was taking the drug it would right. just be yeah. So if everybody inhabits the matrix, the matrix is every bit as real as a world of atoms. I mean, ultimately, we're just talking about but basically energy. But in the matrix, energy. you don't have a shared experience, right? You're not all... Yeah, you do. Everybody's in the matrix. Yeah, but do you still have all to of the people concern agree. yourself with other people's feelings in the matrix? Yeah, because the, those are other people who are plugged into the matrix. They're all plugged in and they share the same... I mean, it's only a delusion if I'm you're outside. More like a world where you go into. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> I was thinking more a world where, like, everyone could kind of go into their own virtual reality and control okay, well, that, everyone in their world. Okay, well, that's a little bit different. And yeah. I, I guess what I would say is, I'd leave it up to the people to choose. Yeah. If you want to be in one in which you have your own world and you control everything, then okay. I mean, we'd have to be careful about potential side effects, et cetera. But anyway, I, apparently neither you nor I find that particularly persuasive, but a lot of people do. Now, here's a potential solution to that. So we've been focusing on hedonic utilitarianism. There's also a form of utilitarianism called preference-based or preference utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, probably the most prominent and famous uh, utilitarian in the modern world, Peter Singer, used to be a preference utilitarian. Uh, he committed an apostasy toward the end here, and now he's apparently more of a hedonic utilitarian. <laughs> so preference-based utilitarianism says what we should maximize are preferences. Mm -hmm. I have a preference to you know, play guitar, etc., and we should attempt to maximize those preferences, and those aren't always the same thing as mental state or well let me rephrase that as pleasures or pains they don't cash out in the same currency necessarily right because you could want to do something that actually is miserable <laughs> yes right so you and people you, you do could, all the time absolutely so yeah. you could want to do i don't know like some mountain climbing thing that would actually be mm. brutally painful while you're doing it but maybe rewarding afterwards so that would be a preference Another thing that preference-based utilitarianism solves that's sometimes a problem for hedonic utilitarianism is that th there, there are always all these examples of, well, what if nobody knew? So a good example is suppose that I have a diary and mm -hmm. I don't want anybody to read it and then we're given this ethical question. Somebody can read it, it increases his mental state slightly and nobody ever finds out about it. Is that ethical? Well, it appears that the utilitarian has to accept, the hedonic utilitarian has to accept that it is ethical because I don't know, so my mental state remains the same and it actually increased somebody else's. I think maybe the more 
uh, intuitive example is like a um, a surgeon who like abuses his sexually abuses a patient while they're uh, unconscious. They're I'm not. That's stuff. not more intuitive. It's more it, you're if, raising you're the like, stakes significantly. <laughs> yeah, but if you if you say you know no one would ever find out, the patient wouldn't find out. No one would right. know. The doctor really enjoys it a lot. And right, so it doesn't traumatize anybody, and it couldn't right. traumatize anybody. Right. Everyone, I think, would still say it's wrong. Yeah, so that is the doctor anesthetizes a woman and then uses her breasts for, say, masturbatory purposes, but she's asleep, so she never knows. She never finds out. It dramatically increases his pleasure, at least for a short burst of time. Mm-hmm. How How does that hedonic utilitarian say that that's wrong right right so clearly the preference they would come up with something because you know well right always but, can but that doesn't mean it's the real reason why it's wrong right so that's an in well okay so let's set that aside just for one second so the preference-based utilitarian though can solve this puzzle quite quickly which is she would prefer not to be fondled while um while mm-hmm. she's anesthetized and therefore if we were maximizing uh, preferences, that's what we would do, right? We would respect that preference. Now, a point that you brought up that's a really good point is, well, the hedonic utilitarian would figure something out, mm-hmm. right? Because we have this very strong intuition that that's wrong. And if you want to promote a moral system and your moral system says it's not wrong, nobody's going to care about your moral system. <laughs> <laughs> so you had better solve that problem. So I guess that raises this interesting question, which, well, a couple questions. What are we trying to do with moral philosophies? Like, what's the point of a moral philosophy? And are we just creating a moral philosophy and then attempting to defend it and justify it? I think the point of moral philosophy is to feel superior to other animals (laughs) and pretend that we're guided by principles when really we're all just like following our intuitions. (laughs) I look at my dog and I just think how superior I am every time I read John Stuart Mill. Um, I think that that's a cynical answer. That's maybe like 10% true. I I think, okay. So suppose, suppose for example, somebody says I have this moral philosophy and it's rationally, it's totally consistent. It's rationally consistent. But it leads to all of these, what we would consider abysmal moral consequences. Mm -hmm. Is that a good moral philosophy? I think most of us would say no, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have to somehow conform to moral intuitions, right? And in fact, what people do in debates about moral philosophy, most of it consists of saying, well, your moral philosophy says that this is okay, and obviously that's ridiculous, so your moral philosophy is bad. And then they just disagree about whether the moral philosophy actually would predict that, which means yeah, you know, that it's pretty much impossible to prove someone isn't a utilitarian, because there that, always is some justification. Right, that's true, and that's interesting that a lot of the time, the disagreement's not about whether the behavior is is good or bad. It's about whether the moral philosophy would prohibit the Mm -hmm. behavior, right? 
Exactly. So it's like, oh, no, here's the utilitarian solution to that problem, right? Right. Now, one, we can get into that in more detail. It should be noted that another distinction in the, the utilitarian world is between act-based and rule-based utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. So rule-based utilitarianism solves a lot of the other the dilemmas that arise for act-based utilitarianism because what rule-based utilitarianism says is we should follow the rules that would most maximize subjective well-being or human flourishing or whatever we, we care about there. Um, and therefore, individual acts may not actually maximize well-being Right. But the rule on average over time, will that's the basic idea. So you can come up with examples in which killing somebody might actually increase utility. But what the rule based utilitarian would say is there's a rule that we shouldn't. And that actually works better in the long run and over the aggregate. Right. So the good example for this one is like, should we harvest the organs of one healthy person to save 10 people? And you would want to say, yes, we should do that. But if you had that as a rule, then people would, or if that was permitted in a society, then that would cause people more distress. So you should say we should just have a rule against it, even if in many cases it would be better to do so. Right. That's right. So, so there, it seems as though the rule based utilitarian approach is reasonably effective and it's also sensible in that it kind of combines deontology mm-hmm. with utilitarianism and a lot of the a lot of my concern with act-based utilitarianism is if we actually promoted the notion that there are all these exceptions to moral rules it would lead to catastrophe because we need simple rules to action. Right. Because the more complicated they are, the more people can try to justify their own behavior by arguing for some, some complexity for some reason, the rule doesn't apply to me in this particular case. Yeah, exactly. I think there are a couple things. One, it actually makes it complicated for people to know what they should do. Right. That's one thing. And then two is, the more ambiguity that there is, the easier it is for me to pursue my own interests and then justify them. Right. Exactly. Right. It's okay for me to cheat on my taxes because right. I don't make it's a lot of money. It's for the greater good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And there are all these exceptions. And it actually, dude, it turns out that if you add up global utility, my cheating on everything is better for the world. It's just how it works out, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how one could do it. Yeah. One could justify it. Um, so so those are the four. I'll just go over those briefly to see what your favorite flavor of utilitarianism. <laughs> so we've got two. We have act-based and rule-based. And then we have hedonic versus preference, right? So hedonic is about the mental, the individual mental states, the pains, pleasures, and preferences is about maximizing preferences. Uh, I prefer this happen. I prefer that not happen, let's say. Mm-hmm. A, a problem for another problem for preference based utilitarianism, which we didn't talk about, is what preferences. So let's suppose that I get drunk and I have certain preferences. Should we respect those preferences? Right. Because 
you might regret them the next day. <laughs> right. But you might have a preference not to have those preferences honored, right? You mean I might have a preference beforehand? You might a have meta a preference, preference if yeah. you will? <laughs> you might have a preference for your drunk preferences not to count into the calculus. <laughs> that is true. But it gets, you can see it gets, you know, you, you like this simple idea. Like we just work with preferences, but then pretty quickly it gets more complicated than that. And some philosophers have introduced the notion of I- ideal preferences. I guess what, what a, pe- a person would prefer in their like healthiest mental state, I suppose, right? right? But then this gets complicated because that's in some sense metaphysical. We have to try to get at it. It's not, mm-hmm. we have to abstract it from the world. So there, there are lots of complexities there. Yeah, but right. So that one, the example I give to that one, which I think makes that 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 is a problem is that people's preferences would change a lot depending on their mental state. And mm-hmm. should you should you consider their mental state when they're ideal, I suppose, or when they're actually in that situation? And if you ask people to predict oh, what right. they want in the future, they're often right. catastrophically wrong. So a good example is with the end of life uh, decision making. A lot of people think that they wouldn't want to be put on life support. But then when they actually are ill, everyone has a very strong will to live. So people think right. they don't want to be kept alive when they have limited capacities. Maybe they can't eat or they can't go to the bathroom and they say, yeah, mm-hmm. like I would want to, I would want you to kill me, but people don't actually want that when they get there. Right. And, and you can, one can see the problem here. Cause su- suppose that I say definitely don't give me this treatment, mm-hmm. but then I'm 78 and I'm howling that I want the treatment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you there really going to recently, right? Who, had like do, do not resuscitate tattooed on his chest or something. I did not see that. And then he, I forget he was in, I don't know. Anyway, he was unconscious. And I, I think actually they did honor it and they didn't try to save his life. Oh, which is, yeah, I, I, I don't know anything about that. But when so he was getting not. that tattoo for all we know, he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so should we really listen to this guy? That's uh, a big commitment device right there. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I think both you were, so moral philosophies, I, I think it's thrilling and exciting. And I think what, mostly what you're trying to do is conform with human intuition mm-hmm. and guide, guide humans in cases in which you have two conflicting intuitions, right? Because those are where, you, I mean, every pretty much everybody agrees, you know, killing somebody for no reason is wrong. Right. So we don't have a lot of disagreement about that. There are uh, topics that we do have a lot of disagreement about, probably because we have two competing intuitions. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think moral philosophy is compelling because you can use it and you you try I think what you want to do What's an example of that where you have two competing intuitions and what does moral philosophy solve what solution do they give that's useful well that's a very good question so I suppose what what I'm talking about like should we resuscitate someone who has a tattoo on them I suppose maybe a preference utilitarian would say no we shouldn't boom problem solved um 
Yeah, so so end of life treatment is something that ethicists care about. I don't actually care that much about it, and I don't know a lot about it, so I don't really want to talk about that example. Okay. Although, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad one. I'm just not particularly well read in that. So, I mean, I'm trying to think of um, different moral issues that we face. So, for example, homosexual marriage. Mm should should homosexuals be allowed to marry um mm-hmm. i think what what moral philosophy attempted to do there or what i would see moral philosophy doing there is pointing out that the intuition against gay marriage is actually not particularly useful in modern society and that the intuition about satisfying human mental states, human flourishing by allowing people to enter uh, free autonomous relationships that are dignified by the government, Mm -hmm. that intuition we should preserve. But do you think that actually convinces anybody or do you think people have like an, an intuition about autonomy and people should be allowed to pursue romantic relationships with people they want to be in romantic relationships oh i yes i i think people have a lot of people have both intuitions and that yes it's an intuition about autonomy and pursuing relationships i think the arguments are they do persuade people yes i i'm an optimist about the effectiveness of arguments and i will say this probably distinguishes me from certain intuitionists and moral psychology especially who think that our rational argumentation is relatively impotent. I think that it's quite effective, probably. And in the case of gay marriage, I think it was very effective. I also think it was effective in ending slavery in the United States. I mean, I obviously also we had a civil war. I understand that. But I do think the fact that slavery was virtually indefensible, <laughs> um, especially by, I mean, like, look, if we go, if we travel back to ancient Greece or something, I think one could probably defend the the type of slavery they had. I I don't know. Um, But it was indefensible by the time you get into the 1800s. I think the fact that it was indefensible was important. I think that really mattered. I think the fact that people in in Britain, for example, became convinced that it was indefensible, led to the abolition. Why wouldn't of, R have intuitions? Like, why wouldn't they have won like long ago? Like, why do they take a while for us to realize, okay, it's not okay to harm other people or take advantage of other people or use other well, people? Well, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, sure. Okay, so one thing I would point out is. If let's say you're comparing to ancient Greece, mm-hmm. well, in ancient Greece, most people's lives were pretty brutal. So mm-hmm. the difference between being a slave and being an average person wasn't it was not a large difference. And also, slavery was often uh, it was sort of like the, the moral thing to do because it's what you did with armies that you had vanquished right rather than kill everybody you took them as slaves right. um so so, <laughs> so noble <laughs> very noble um so I, I think that in a lot of these cases the actual consequences of the behaviors were different so by the time you get into the united states in say 1845 it's very clear that the the disparity 
between the life of an average freed person and a slave was pretty large. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, the other thing is obviously self-interest prevails. (laughs) You know, we evolved to attend to our fit. I mean, not consciously, of course, but um, unconsciously basically attend to our own fitness more than other people. So it's really easy to ignore, distort, rationalize, get rid of these intuitions. On the other hand, though, it should be noted that say, the British abolition of the slave trade cost Britain an immense amount of money. So it, it was, as far as I, as far as I've read, and therefore it was actually a triumph of moral argumentation and moral intuition well, over self-interest. Reputation, right, and your reputation is. Really oh sure, sure, yeah. So I mean, there's no such thing as like noble self-interested in some ways. Well, okay, and that I mean, evolution's not going to create genetically altruistic creatures. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's some sort of probably some sort of self-interest. Sure, but that's agreed. But but one of those self-interests, by the way, might be. So Singer makes this argument. Singer argues that once you have the capacity to reason, and we could, it's obviously complicated how we got there, and we have this capacity to argue via reason, inconsistencies bother us. Mm-hmm. It's just annoying to be a hypocrite or to have an inconsistency in our reasoning. And of course, what one could easily have said in 1810 is, would you want to be a slave? And I, I don't think anyone would, would voluntarily say yes. And therefore, mm-hmm. it was particularly disturbing to people to have this, uh, to hold this contradictory set of beliefs. Right. Because other right. people will judge you for Agreed. being a hypocrite. Right. And yeah. that's why the, the argumentation theory, that's why I, I'm actually optimistic about the power of argumentation, because... Mm-hmm. Well, there's this theory in psychology, I think we even touched on it last time, but we can talk about it more in a future episode, but basically that reasoning evolved for public argumentation. And if that's true, that would suggest that it probably is effective. It evolved right. so that you could persuade that other people are contradicting their own principles or yeah, mm-hmm. you can prove someone's being a moral hypocrite, then they're kind of forced to change to preserve their own reputation as a reasonable person or a moral person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that that's important. Yeah. So I was hoping that what we could do briefly, uh, how long have we been yapping? 54 minutes. Wow. I know. Okay. So very brief, <laughs> very briefly. But I wanted so- to talk about why no one is a utilitarian. And Why I think it is my no autonomy, my autonomy uh, example is the one that proves no one's it. So it's um, about, I think, let's call her Sarah, and she wants to be a chef, but she is capable of speaking to dead people. And everybody mm. in the world wants to use her to speak to their loved ones that they've lost. But she just really wants to be a chef, and she's not even a really good chef. A utilitarian would say she should be forced, probably, to talk to dead people. Um, and not so, pursue her dream of becoming a chef. And I think everyone would say she should be allowed to be a chef. I So it's, well, one thing is, I think actually you'd find cultural variation there. I think people in, from Western Europe would say she should be able to pursue whatever career she desires, right? Mm-hmm. Within reason. Right. I think there are people in other cultures who would say, 
yeah, you're damned right. She should do what <laughs> what's better for society. Like yeah. the notion that she would get to choose her career path is ridiculous, right? Perhaps you're right. Now, I think the the rule-based utilitarian can solve that problem rather easily, though, right? And the rule-based utilitarian would say, what we do in Western society is we allow people to pursue, pursue the careers they want, and the market generally will incentivize what we need. And therefore, that's actually better for everyone's well-being in the long run. If we let everyone pursue what they want. Yes, because because the market will incentivize. So it's like, yeah, maybe you want to pursue a career in whirly gig making, but if you're not going to make any money out of it, you'll do something yeah, else. And the market. So in the case of Sarah, people would be willing to pay her a lot of money. They sure would. People. So she would probably give up on being a chef because she'd rather just make a lot of probably. money. Probably. And the other thing with the Sarah example is, it, again, it's more of a metaphysical example because it's suggesting there's only one person who's capable of this in the entire world. Yeah. Right. Which So, so again, I mean, maybe what you're saying is there, there's this autonomy intuition that we have, which is why we recoil at the notion. Which is not no reasoned. It's just, yes, right. we all feel like people should have autonomy. Right. And it's right. not, it's not a one-to-one. It doesn't correspond with mental states one-to-one. Right. Yeah. That, that's why, that's why we recoil in horror at the example of the woman who gets her breast fondles by the, by the doctor is because we feel as though she has bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. We don't care about the mental states that we don't have to think about the mental states. We just think that's wrong. Right. Right. Uh, I, I, I'd love to have a sophisticated utilitarian such as a Peter Singer on here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he could do a spectacular job talking about these issues and probably defending many of them. Um, but let's end with uh, maybe 10 minutes of talk on effective altruism because yeah. it's something that both you and I are interested in. Yeah. Uh, do you want to say what basically effective altruism is? Effective altruism is just essentially the idea that you should, if you're going to be, if you're going to try to help other people, you should help other people in the way that helps the most people. So it essentially should be the most effective possible. So, one thing that they promote a lot is um, donating money to buy mosquito nets for people because this can prevent a lot of people from dying of malaria. Um, so rather than spending your your money on, I think an a, a example he gave was you can buy, uh, you can train um, a, a, a seeing eye dog for a blind person for like forty thousand dollars but you could take forty thousand dollars and cure blindness for like thousands of people in developing countries and so we really shouldn't be di- buying or training seeing eye dogs in the u.s um, well so i i'm not sure if somebody would say we shouldn't be doing that we can get we into shouldn't do it first i guess Perhaps we should Probably. prioritize, yes. And yeah. so, in fact, I think the example you gave is precisely why some people are repulsed by effective altruism. Because we want to train seeing eye dogs. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, part of me was thinking as you were saying that, no, like I want to take care of people here. Right. Um, well, so let, part, let, of the, it... part of the idea is that, no, like all lives are exactly equal, which I find to be mm-hmm. probably 
wrong. And I think even so, like, shouldn't if Bill Gates is saving 5.8 million people, which I think that's what I saw that he whatever, if Bill Gates is saving millions of people, is his life not more important than someone who isn't saving people? Is his life not more valuable than my life? Well, I think a utilitarian would say his life is, but not intrinsically, rather because he's helping other people, right? Right. So, so, so let's, I could be more valuable. I'm just not. You could. You could. You're not. Empirically, you are just not, just right? Not. Yeah. Uh, okay. So to step back for a second, effective altruism, Peter Singer's associated with this, um, Paul Bloom, William McCaskill, a lot of people, Jeffrey Miller, and it, it's pretty closely related to utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to be a utilitarian to be an effective altruist. But the the point is, like, let's do this scientifically. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the premise that each subjective, each, you know, person's mental states are equally important and figure out the way to maximize the increase in pleasure in the world or or to mitigate suffering in the world. Um, And there's there are some laudable aspects to it. It's very empirical, right? It really right. they really are interested in the evidence. What does this do? And they update their beliefs rather often. In fact, I've heard interviews with a couple of these people and read a couple articles, and it's amazing how open they are to argumentation and mm-hmm. how often they change their minds. Yeah, that's which is cool. But mm-hmm. one one thing they promote is not spending your money on things you don't really need, but spending your money on things you don't really need creates jobs for people, right? So if people stopped buying stuff instead donated all of their money to charities, then I guess a lot of cons- like a lot of commercial organizations would go out of business, but then the charities maybe could hire these people. <laughs> I don't know, but okay, you're like so pulling I, I, money I, I, out of the economy and right. putting it toward charities exclusive, not exclusively, but much more than we mm-hmm. do currently. Okay, so two two things. I want to keep this in mind to remember mm-hmm. the the Singer thought experiment. But I think what McCaskill would say is. Well, yes, if everybody started giving to charity, that would actually be a catastrophe. But what you have to ask yourself is, what's going on in the world right now? And where can like my last $15 most maximize well-being? And the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, we're, we're not in any great peril of everybody donating all their money to charity right now. Probably. And therefore, what he would say is, that's what you should do. And then he would say... Look, if it, if you know, if in the future people were donating fifty percent of their incomes to charity and that caused a problem with the market, then he would recommend a different course of action, right? So I, I think, I think that would be his answer, and I think that seems rather plausible. Um, one, okay, so an, another problem. So here's here's a famous thought experiment by Singer, and I'm not going to give it exactly the way Singer does, but it's it preserves the the important part of the thought experiment. So he says, like, imagine there's this boy in this like disgusting swamp who's drowning, and his dad can't get in there for whatever reason. Maybe his dad's in a wheelchair doesn't really matter. We make it so that there's no moral blame there, though. And you're walking and you just 
bought, uh, let's say you have a $10,000 suit on and if you go in, your suit's definitely going to be ruined. You just spent 10000 on it, but you can also, you can be pretty certain that you will save this boy's life. Most of us have the intuition that you should go in. Mm-hmm. That's what Singer says, right? And then he says, but we're actually basically in this position all the time. Right. Because the $10,000 that we use to buy a suit, let's say could actually be used to save people in Africa. Right. And I have, I have this multiple uh, responses to this argument. On the one hand, I think it's a really good argument and it's, it's um, it represents the best of philosophy, I think, right. It's, it's taking, it's making a thought experiment that makes you go, Hmm, you know, like, there might be something to that. On the other hand, I would go to the argument you were making here, and I would suggest one problem people have is that they tend to think that when you spend money on a suit, it disappears from the universe, <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think people just have this, uh, if you give money, you buy like a, a um What's one of those fancy boats? See, I'm never going to have one. Yes, I don't need to know the name because I've never owned one. But if you buy a yacht, people seem to think that's just like this gaudy waste of money as if you just took the money and lit it on fire. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is buying that suit employs lots of people. And the market allocates money often much more efficiently than charities do. Right. Right. So... Now, again, really the like, worst thing you can do is just save your money. That's the dick thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> you should just give it to charity, buy a nice suit, but just definitely spend it all. Well, <laughs> Don't well, keep so, it no, under your mattress. <laughs> well, under your mattress is bad. Putting yeah. it in a bank is not bad because right. actually people can borrow that money and then use Unless it for the bank has productive a purposes. Of right. And that's that's Keynesianism 101 that we're not going to get into. Doesn't right? <laughs> Harvard have a massive surplus of money? So they're oh, they really like a, the most immoral people. <laughs> well, again, though, that, that surplus is in a bank and people, yeah, right. people are using it for productive ads. Um, so I don't know what the response to my argument is. I suspect you could use the McCaskill argument, which would be, um, okay. So I, I guess the point is, an important point here is these are actually not parallel cases because in the case where you're ruining your, your suit, you already bought it and you put that money into the economy. Mm-hmm. In the other case, you're actually taking money out of the economy and putting it into a different economy, namely the charity economy. Right. And, and you want to figure out which one actually does more good. And that's, that's not that's right. obvious to me. Because people do have to spend money so that people can have jobs. (laughs) I mean, not only is it not obvious to me, I would go so far as to say, I'll bet the market economy does a better job of allocating resources than most charities do. Well, it's it's hard because charities will spend the money on, like if they're buying mosquito nets, Someone has to make those mm-hmm. mosquito nets, so they're creating jobs that way. Well, that's that's Someone true too. Someone has to that's distribute a good point. them. They have to hire people to work there. Yeah, absolutely. So, but so charities aren't not, just burning the money either. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not obvious. Now, again, I I want to be clear that 
the people associated with the effective altruism movement would definitely say it's an empirical question mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have a firm conviction about this. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the, the laudable thing about this. Now, is the sorry, dog case definitely correct though? Should we not buy seeing so, right, seeing that's what Because most yeah. moral questions won't be that obvious, but that right. one is $40,000. Well, that's, that's what I was going to get to. So one of the things that I think can be alienating about effective altruism is it is definitely not an America first philosophy, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's, it's, in fact, it's actually, it's anti-nationalist, mm -hmm. right? Because most of us think we should care more about people in our own nation. That is, I care more about somebody in the United States than I do about somebody in Spain. Right. Effective altruism most of the proponents would say that's irrational and there's no justification for it. Right. And I would say that that is potentially a useful bias to care about people nearby because usually you can help people nearby more easily than people far away. Right. That might not be true anymore now that we have the internet and you can donate money to countries all over the world and some countries right. are in more need than others. But in general, it's easier to help people nearby. And so right. it probably that makes would... sense to do that. Also, so it's hard be... to it's hard to check up on. I don't know if I donate money to some you know other country, an organization that I'll never see, I'll never know what they're doing. Whereas if I like donate a bunch of money to a local animal shelter, and then I like drove by and I saw the employees were having a pizza party, I'd be like, hey, that's not what I intended with my donation. I wanted to sure. Help the so, animals. but that's still a utilitarian argument, basically, which is well, localism right. makes sense because you have more information. Mm -hmm. What about somebody who just makes a flat out localism is is better because it's my bias and I prefer that people around me thrive more than people in Spain? Yeah. Is that is that an immoral argument? I don't I don't know that I would say that it's immoral because it's so so you're saying even if it wasn't useful. Correct. Yeah. So in the same way that we have a bias that but we care. I think one thing that I, I, I don't like about effective altruism is that I want to like really nurture people's passions. So like if you care a lot about something, you're going to do more. Than... Wait, well, OK, so hold on for a second, though. You're That's getting, maybe you, getting you to you're you're escape. Well, you're escaping my argument. OK, uh, my question is. If you, if I just say, look, I care more about people in Marietta, Ohio than I do in Spain. Mm -hmm. That's just how it is. And I'm willing to devote more resources to those people because I care more. Mm -hmm. Is that immoral? I think I would argue it's not. But I think a lot of people, especially well, utilitarians would definitely argue that it is. I don't. I that don't it's know immoral. that it is. Okay. I don't. So I think that's the big challenge. Uh, you know, some sort of like localist versus globalist do, is it legitimate to have, m to concern yourself more morally with people who are local, right? In the same way that we care more about the well-being of our family members right. than of strangers, right? And I guess I, I would say- I think most people are kind of okay with that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I yeah. Even- I don't know, would Peter Singer be okay with that? Yes, but Singer makes a utilitarian argument that it just mm -hmm. 
turns out because of the biases we have, you could defend raising, you know, raising children in the way we do and having, you know, where, where parents care much more about their own children than other children. Right. Because if um, everyone cares more about their own children, right, then not every right. child has a caring parent. Or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it turns out that when you attempt to subvert that kind of a system, the results are generally disastrous. This is how I feel about this is getting back to the point I was trying to make, which is that people, I want people giving to the charities that they care about because then they'll give more and they'll give oh, more. Right. And yeah. if you try to tell people, oh, I know you're like an animal rights, like you love uh, working for the shelter and walking shelter dogs, but you should take your time instead uh, toward some other cause that's more effective, right? Mm-hmm. Then they might just not be motivated to really do as much as they would. Well, then that would be a suboptimal effective altruism outcome. So yeah. I, I think what they would say there is what you want to do, you don't want to be belligerent about this. What you want to do is get the information out there about mm-hmm. what's the most effective thing you can do with your money or your mm-hmm. time, and then slowly guide people in that direction. So you know, like if you it's a can very reasonable position, <laughs> right? If you can make, if you can save 52, let's say we, we have 52 children who have cancer and you can save them mm-hmm. or you can save three squirrels on the campus of Marietta. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're on the Marietta campus, perhaps you get exhilarated about these squirrels. You're an animal rights activist. We want to save the squirrels and you devote a lot of time, energy, and perhaps resources to that. But is that the optimal allocation? Probably not. I mean, I'm a, Even I would defend. Are really cool. They are really cool and <laughs> cute, and I would defend localism, but I wouldn't go that far with my right. defense of localism. Right. So I think a lot of the I, I this is the one thing I will, and I think this is related to what you were saying. The thing that concerns me about effective altruism is not that it's wrong, but rather that it seems a bit intellectually um, haughty and globalist in this abstract way that may be alienating to people. This notion that we should be sending like computers to the Congo instead of caring about people in the United States, I think is off-putting to people in the United States, to a, especially a certain demographic. That's probably right, but I don't know that that means you shouldn't make the argument and try. Oh, I don't disagree with that. I'm saying that's just a potential problem that people need to be aware of. And I would defend some variety of localism still, but perhaps I'll go into that more (laughs) some other time. Do you want to close us out? Yeah, I want to close us out. So my take-home message for this is that Moral philosophy is awesome and compelling, but there isn't an objective truth. And the probably the best moral system forwarded is some sort of rule-based utilitarianism, but even that doesn't completely describe the moral universe that I want to inhabit. <laughs> All right.